Welcome to the Success Inspired Podcast, a business and personal development podcast to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential. And now here is your host, Vid Muller. Hello, everybody. My guest today is a cybersecurity expert, infrastructure engineer, and a cryptocurrency specialist. Originally from Australia, he spent the last 15 years in technology sectors looking after hotels, casinos, and data centers. He designed, built, and maintained cloud and on-premise infrastructures for large retail, fintech, and hedge funds in the UK. And most recently, the 100 billion pound SoftBank Vision Fund in Mayfair. His most recent venture is CoinPass, a UK-based crypto exchange endeavoring to build a clean, safe, and transparent way to build digital crypto assets. Please welcome to the show, Jeff Hancock. Hey Jeff, great to have you here, mate. Great to have you here. All the way from London right now, I believe. Is that where you are? Yep. Yeah, sunny morning in London. I say sunny, but it's still brisk. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, yeah. And as I said, um, at the end of the day, so I'm... Um, Cracking the beer open, and we're gonna jump into it and have a good about an hour chat about everything that you do. But let's start with your journey because I'm very interested to know what you guys are doing with CoinPass, and I've got you know, a couple of questions about cryptocurrency, and I want to delve into that. But before we delve sure. into that, I'd love to know your journey. How did you get to that? Because obviously everybody's got their own path, and we don't always sure. start with what we envision to do when we're when we're in our teens i remember like i was pursuing to be a chef one day and i'm not <laughs> so <laughs> can to share yeah i was always like i say i was always an infrastructure engineer i was always a tech guy back in i, I think about 2013 i got my first exposure to crypto about 2013 i'd been you know, in the industry about kind of 12 years i had like, never bought a stock never bought a share never traded never had a business never had a property nothing like that and uh, one of our clients came to us and said they've actually been hacked and they've got this ransom on the screen and uh, the kind of urgency behind it was our actually a financial services company didn't have their data properly backed up so it was imperative that we get rid of this ransomware and help them more help them pay the ransom because they didn't really care about the money they needed the data back and fast so myself and another engineer we were thrown in the deep end we had to learn about this thing called bitcoin and it did some did some forum searching, did some Google searching, found a way for us to procure. I think it was about 10, 15,000 pounds at the time worth, worth of Bitcoin. Send the money over to a bank in another country and they send you back what we thought at the time was just some numbers on a screen. So we started up a virtual machine in a very secure part of our data center because we didn't really know what we were doing. Some numbers appeared on the screen. And then we sent them off to another wallet, which we like assumed we'd done the right thing. Yeah, uh, right. And luckily, a day later, uh, we got the encryption key back and we unlocked this client's data and they ended up becoming a really good client of ours because we literally saved their bacon. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, we turned the virtual machine off and forgot about it. Through the years, it went down through our, our backup tiers and our backup storage, ended up on a tape drive and then eventually got overwritten. And, 20, and that had the private key, had absolutely everything on it. And we never thought of anything of it again until about 2016 when, when Bitcoin started to come back into the news a bit. It got over about $1,000. And we thought, how, what did that wallet still have in it? I can't even remember. But the virtual <laughs> machine was long gone. So all we had left over was the, uh, the, the salty wound emails of what we'd actually exchanged at the time, what we received and what we paid as a ransom. And there was right. about 74, 75 Bitcoin left over. 
at that point. So that was, I think, over about 11 million or something at the time, which is a bit heart-wrenching, but we didn't know what we were doing back then. We were just mm-hmm. learning the technology. And I think at that point in my career, when I'd never done any other investing before, and I didn't have, I suppose, a, a thirst behind me for more education and the people around me at the time, which I think was the bigger play. You always hang out with people that have bigger aspirations than yourself, so you can always level up. I was just in this kind of bubble of, of just work and go to the pub and that was it really. And so I never ever picked up that skill. And then that kind of year 2016, that was a big jab right hook about bettering myself and, and getting my education skill up, not to dwell on past opportunities. It's a cool story. I don't regret one little bit of it. Would that have Bitcoin changed my life? It might have, but I don't think it would have been as a positive way as building something up myself rather than just getting lucky on an exchange rate. So by 2016, 2017, I started looking into property. I got involved in doing some more investing and, and stocks and shares, a bit of trading, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 2017, I had the opportunity to go and work with SoftBank. And that kind of massive level up in having my own consultancy business, having a few properties on the side and becoming what I felt like at the time was a, a proper entrepreneur by working with really good clients and still keeping a lot of my investment portfolio running at the same time. Uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, yeah, how do I get involved in crypto in the UK? I want to buy 10,000 pounds. I don't want to use euros. I don't want to use US dollars. And at the time, there was no real thing I could recommend him to, to get into or to trust. So we ended up starting our own and that became CoinPass. There you go. Well, and you mentioned you work with SoftBank, and they are actually the giant right now of what they're doing, all yeah. the acquisitions, right? Yeah, exactly. So when I was with them, um, not from the very beginning, but from there, about 15 of us in London when we started. By the time I'd left that business, I worked full-time on CoinPass. There's about 150 of us, 160 in London, uh, about 300 in San Carlos in America, about 100 in Japan. So we went through this you know, insanely big uh, growth phase in about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And during that year and a half is when I you know, was putting together CoinPass as well. So really long days, lunch times, weekends. But at the same time, it didn't really feel like work. So it was awesome. And before you got into cybersecurity altogether and working with, with tech stuff and IT, what, yeah. what were you up to before? You're from Australia, right? Before IT or tech, it was pulling beers and working in the gaming areas. So I was always in hospitality. Yeah. I, I didn't get into my first elective in university. I did university part-time for a year to upgrade my... We have an, an OP system in, in Queensland. And so I didn't fit the bill to do IT originally. I had to work my way up. Uh, and then I ended up going into TAFE. Uh, because I'd done about five years of hospitality at that point, and I was tired of doing the same old thing uh, against the people you're surrounded with. They're kind of your, your five best friends are your net worth, yeah. and wanted something more for myself. So I went to TAFE. I did a two-year uh, course in about, I don't know, about 14 months, 13 months. I started with a class of 50, finished down with about six of us finish, actually finishing the course. And then a few months after I finished that course, I'd, um, I'd got a response to a job ad uh, that I put out with the uh, the casino on the Gold Coast, Conrad Jupiter, as it was called at the time. I think it's called Echo Entertainment now. I still have a lot of really good friends there. And they called me back for an IT role. And I spent about you know, five five years in my early 20s there, which is awesome. But doing super late nights, graveyard shifts, early mornings, being responsible for an entire casino site, which was, uh, I take a lot of pride in that. And uh, just the way it ran like clockwork, this huge organization of three and a half thousand people that was organized down to down to a decimal point. And that really flung me in the deep end for one, which is awesome. I think you need to be flung in the deep end a few times in your career to really grow, but also being able to add your own flavor to it and also improve certain parts of that business, whether it's on the security side, on the delivery, on a couple of processes you might update. We weren't just running the machine, we were improving the machine as well, which I always took a lot of pride on. Yeah, and it's such an early attitude. That would have been a great learning curve as well at the same time, right? 
Oh, for sure. The, the the chick that was training me at the time got let go on, on my like third or fourth week. And so they just usually have a three-month onboarding process, not just with you know, learning everything in the casino from IT tech side, but also you have to get your license with the Australian, Australian Federal Police. Yeah. So they had to like speed that process all the way up to get me uh, certified as a like level five something security clearance. But it was lots of big numbers, lots of big tech and three or 400 servers that we were looking after and keeping running. And if one of those go down in the middle of the night, there's a... Uh, there's there's an Australian dollar sign attached to that. And there's a few times when we had to really think in our feet emergency-wise and and keep the place going. Absolutely. It'll be really interesting to see. And and this is, you're still talking about regular currency, real money. It's still... Exactly, yeah. So imagine in the future, and and that's questioning into the crypto stuff, when the casinos will utilize cryptocurrency as as a way of trading and will rely on those servers even more. It'll be really interesting to see. I think especially when it talks about crypto, we'll stick to specifically Bitcoin because it is so decentralized out there. It takes a lot of that internal risk in terms of running your own hardware. So right now, you know, I'm sitting in London, you're on the other side of the world. I could send five or 10 pounds worth of Bitcoin on the duration of this podcast via just the QR code on our you know, mobile wallets or something like that. And yeah. there's, there's no server on my side. There's no server on your side. There's no inter-banking routing connections for the normal banking system. And you will get those funds in less than 10 minutes if we get into the next block. And that kind of thought and concept, it smashes all the taught about money and about moving you know, between countries and that kind of stuff and having something that's truly borderless and truly global that isn't owned or controlled by any kind of one entity it take is, is a lot for some people to take in mm, yeah we'll delve into that in a second because it's also uh, not a lot of people still know about the, the concept of it but i was also trying to segue into that story that you told me on that call i was hoping you want to share that so i suppose the gap in there that that it's, that it's talking about now is the the gap between how i finished at the casino and ended up in uh, finished in australia ended up in the uk so i've been at the casino about five five and a bit years at that point you know, i hadn't taken a lot of time off i was getting pushed quite hard to, to take some annual leave that I had not taken. We'd gone mm. through a couple of mergers and acquisitions from the casino, outsourced all the IT to a big company called EDS, and then EDS was purchased by HP. So I went through like three mergers in three years or something like that, and I'd acquired all this bonus annual leave. It's something like six or eight months worth. And they go, you have to take time off. You have to. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll take. Early 20s, you don't really do a lot of vacationing. You're just grinding, spending your mm. money, et cetera. And I was building streetcars and going racing, all that kind of stuff. And long story short, I, I had to take a year off driving uh, semi-voluntarily. And at the end of that, I got my license back. I had to move. I had to do all this other kind of thing. And I wanted to go traveling for you know, six, eight weeks, finally take some of this annual leave that I'd so rightly deserved and had to take off. And my boss at the time had said, you've got, we've, you've survived yeah, that many mergers and a couple of redundancies. There's only two guys left, for you and one other guy. And there's another redundancy package coming in a few months. Why don't you just leave? And I'm like, well, why not just take six weeks off and do some do something fun? They go, when it gets to you and the older guys are going to stay because they've got mortgages and families and responsibility, you're 25. Come on, you should go and see the world. So my boss encouraged me to quit, which is actually the best thing that ever happened. If I had mm. never quit, I would have bought a house. I would have settled down. I would have not done the things I've done in my life now. So I still have a really special place in my heart for people that, you know, the people that push you outside of your comfort zone, uh, you definitely have to take your hats off to them. So myself and uh, my now CTO, Paul, 
weird. He'd been in and out of a lot of big contracting roles with the Australian uh, emergency services and networking. And he'd done a bit of traveling through America and through China and stuff. And he, and he was keen on new adventure. And we were watching one of those old movie, Burt uh, Reynolds at the Cannibal, Cannibal Run, where they race across America. Yeah, in like Lamborghinis and Ferraris and stuff. And there was a few of those going on, like Gumball Rally, et cetera. We're like, yeah, let's find a cheap one of those. Let's find an affordable one. I can't afford a Ferrari right now or a Lambo, but let's find a cheap one. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's like a charity angle or something. And we did find one at three in the morning on a Saturday, as you do. And uh, we called up the organizer in London. We'd like to be a part of this. It's a charity rally. And he goes, you guys understand it's in seven weeks' time. And I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, you could be in London in seven weeks, everything's set up. We're like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we quit our job, <laughs> bought a car on the internet, got our visas that we needed for the trip, flew to London, picked up the car. It was a tiny little Fiat Bravo, 1.2 litre, which doesn't even sound like it would exist in Australia, but they're very popular in Europe. And within the rules, it couldn't be any older than two year, any older than 10 years, but any bigger than 1.2 litres. So that was the strict rules. And the idea is to take an unsuitable amount of car, an unsuitable car, an unsuitable amount of distance, and then auction it off for charity. And this particular rally was going from London all the way to Mongolia in four weeks. So you were going literally about one third of the way around the planet. And in terms of miles and stuff, like from Australia to London's about 16,000 miles, and mm. we're driving. 10,000 miles back in the opposite direction. And then you auction it off because the fuel is quite expensive in that part of the world because of the supply lines, especially Mongolia. There's one highway in, sorry, two highways in, two highways out, uh, and one train line across the across the entire country. Stuff like food and water and this kind of stuff is, is cheap and attainable, but fuel is very expensive. So mm -hmm. small cars are worth quite a lot over there. Came to London, picked up all our stuff, picked up the car, painted it up like a Spitfire from like an old UK warplane. And yeah, cool. uh, yeah we drove London down to southern germany up into poland uh, czech republic all the way up to through lithuania latvia in a single night into russia it took us close to a day just to import the car because i don't speak russian nor can i write in russian so the paperwork was very difficult drove all the way across to kazakhstan I spent five six days driving across kazakhstan up into the altai mountains which is very tough for a small car like that it's the highest border crossing in the world uh, way higher than, than kosciuszko and then yeah it took us about nearly two weeks to cross uh, mongolia averaging 12 hours of driving doing 100 miles a day maybe if we're lucky so Holy it was, shit. Uh, it was yeah, hard graph, a lot, lot of tires, a lot of blowouts, but sticking safety in numbers, sticking with a convoy of you know six to eight cars just to share food, share resources, keep safe, and eventually made it to the end. And some of the best friends that I still have in the UK now are people that we travel with and survive with at that time. What was the biggest takeaway point from you from doing that journey of driving 100, 100 miles a day? That's a bit of a distance it's as well. Definitely, definitely mental agility. Some of us yeah, definitely feel invincible sometimes. And you think, oh, that'll never happen to me. But having mental brain breakdowns are very you know mental breakdowns as well as physical breakdowns uh, are very normal and as we found towards the end very healthy to be able to let stuff out and share stuff with you know with one another towards the end when we had that kind of group of guys and girls that were all traveling together circling around a campfire at night and just sitting there in silence and enjoying that company was very healthy and very soothing and i don't think any of those people if you talk to them now and none of us would have made it through it without each other you can't do it solo. You can't drive that kind of distance through those kind of conditions with everything set against you. You've got limited resources, sometimes limited fuel. You're carrying three or four days worth of fuel with you at all times. Mm. You're carrying a week's worth of food with you at all times. If you don't have your best mate covering your back, there's a lot of things against you that not just will end you up in a very difficult position. There's a, there's, there's a life element to it. There's a few times where we picked up guys traveling because they'd blown all their tires, had no fuel left. 
and they could have been picked up by locals. They could have been something even worse happened, but they were really lucky to come across us. Mm. You know, and give them fuel, give them all this kind of stuff and help them towards the end. And it wasn't just people on the rally. There was pockets of, of people we met along the way through some sort of poverty or, or whatever. You have a really cool t-shirt and they, that's really cool. You, you give it to them. We were collecting all this stuff along the way and we were giving it out as uh, towards the end because they needed it more than us. Uh, I'm still trying to survive in a foreign country in the middle of a desert where it's 10, 15 degrees during the day, which in the desert doesn't sound that bad, but at night it was like negative 15. Yeah. We were you know, trying, you know, literally in survival mode for some of that. And sometimes you still feel like you've, you've got more than some of these other people and you need to give back. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest things we took out of it is that you're just one person in the, the day, but you have the, the power and the ability to give literally only a little piece of yourself to dozens of people and you can change their life for the better. That's the biggest thing we took out of it. Not just the money we raised for the charity. Like we bought the car for 500 quid and we auctioned it off for nearly 1500 pounds. Plus the fundraising money we did was about another thousand pounds. And that went on to a very noble charity for that year. It was a Christina Noble uh, children's charity, which deals with sex trafficking in, in Southeast Asia. And that particular year, 400 teams started at about... I think about 200 teams finished and we raised, you know, close to 4 million pounds for this particular charity doing something that, yeah, it was fun, not just the money. So we helped a lot of people along the way as well. One particular rule of the rally that I quite liked, which we didn't do that year, which I wish we had, was you can take a car that was 10 years old, 1.2 litre, or you can take a service vehicle like an ambulance or a fire truck. And that helps the emergency services in that in Mongolia, in that country. And the statistic was, we did it, we happened to do it on the biggest year in history. So they haven't had rallies that big since ours. But there was something like, I think, 50 ambulances that did it. And they said, if all 50 of those ambulances make it to the finish line, and I think a vast majority of them did, it said it would double the amount of ambulances in the entire country. Holy the shit. entire country. So there's less than 50 ambulances in Mongolia before we started. And I think something like 42 made it or something like that. And that's a huge impact to that country now, bringing that much just utility equipment. And while we didn't drive the ambulance or do the other kind of stuff like that, it's quite cool that you know, the year that I did it you know, in, in 2010 was one of the biggest defining years in terms of money raised and also utility vehicles brought to Mongolia. And I still love sharing that kind of story with people because I'm exceptionally proud of it. Oh, that's a great story. And I think it's good to see that more and more businesses are getting involved with being more than just a commercial business. We yep. have more of a legacy helping less fortunate. Uh, a good example is the B1G1 organization. I'm not sure if you're aware yeah, of that. Yeah, one. yeah, I've met the founder a few times uh, for a few events here in London. And uh, no, we've talked a few times on how we can collab- collaborate a little bit more and um, mm. on an education side as well as on a... Um, on a monetary side as well. Through our next financial year, we're looking at reaching out to a few more of those kind of organizations that really have a, a compounding effect, which mm-hmm. I really like. We're very strong on the education side. Love sharing, love doing content like this. We're looking at uh, a few gateways into a few organizations, universities here in the UK to start giving some more of our information back and trying to help those kind of courses because there's a lot more interest around crypto and blockchain now, not just for the monetary value, but the technical the technical way which can improve a lot of stuff in the future now let's unpack that a little bit for those listening if they're hearing you know about this for the first time or may have heard about it for a while about that you know the term thrown around the blockchain what is a blockchain in simple terms what does that do how does it work if so think of like a blockchain like a massive google sheet that everyone can read so like a big shared spreadsheet but once a line is written to it 
it cannot be unwritten. So it's immutable. It's there forever. But it's completely transparent. So you can read every single transaction that's ever happened on that blockchain. So if I send you a Fiverr and then you send it to your mate Bill and then he sends it to his friend Jane, all of those transactions will be recorded there in real time. Now, if you, if you think of that spreadsheet like a massive database, right, that's, it's there to be uh, to collect data and for everyone to read and write the same amount of data, sorry, the same data set at all times, is that when it comes to, say, if you use your bank card, to buy something, right? The merchant will check with the bank and the bank will say, yes, that person has enough money. You can do the transaction. And that's very one-sided because at any time that bank could say, actually, there's a problem with this person's account. Don't let them have access to their money. And that happens all the time, really, in banking, right? Now, with a blockchain, especially specifically the Bitcoin blockchain, that merchant can go to a decentralized network that's got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of nodes out there. And it can ask, it can ask many nodes, has this person got $10 in their account? And it's getting a unanimous decision among all the nodes and all the participants to say, yes, that person has the money in their account. Yes, you can do that transaction. If one rogue player puts their hand up and says, no, there's not enough money in that account, the rest of the nodes will outvote them and say, no, you've got the wrong information. All of us are looking at a copy of this big spreadsheet and all of us agree that all the data is the same and that's how you get a consensus between all of those nodes and because it's completely decentralized anyone can be on the bitcoin network you can fire up a laptop or a more powerful machine and you can be a part of that network you might not have the same input power as some of the bigger players but you can still contribute to that decentralized network as if you were in anyone in the real world Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that because there's two things to it. One is you could just be an investor. You could just be investing in Bitcoin and and just do that. Or uh, three options, actually. One, you could be investing. One, you could be using as a, a simply as a payment option online, like a more secure or more of a um, mm -hmm. private option. And thirdly, you could be helping support the network by means of what exactly. you mentioned, the nodes. And we're talking about yeah. the, what's it called? The, the harvesting or? Mining. Mindings. That's uh, sorry, mining. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so exactly. <clears throat> how does that work? So you need a you actually need like a hardware, like a physical, like a power, like a performance from a machine that can process all that computation. Exactly. So this is probably what, and this, this is the conversation I really like having people. Like, what's the price of Bitcoin going to do tomorrow? It's, it's a bit of a boring conversation, but there's something in there for everyone. And just like you mentioned, there's three things there. You could be an investor. You could be using it for price speculation, which is what a lot of people do. There's nothing wrong with that. Same with trading and stocks and shares. It's all about price speculation. It just happens that Bitcoin moves more volatile than anyone else. So it actually makes it a really good speculation vehicle for making money. You can obviously uh, invest and take take the other uh, token into your own custody, which means I can put it into a Bitcoin wallet. I have what's called the private key. So if you think about your, your debit card again for the second, I don't really care about you know, the number in the front of it that's used for a lot of different things. It's the three secure digits on the back mm. that make it, that's the secure bit. So if you think about the number on the front is the public key, anyone can send me money to that number if they know that number on the front, but the private key is the number on the back and that's the secure bit that only I know. You know that's the bit that controls the funds. So I can take my Bitcoin into a wallet that I control that's not controlled by a bank, it's not controlled by a government, it's not controlled by anyone else, it's mine. So I could take what's called self-custody of my wealth, which is very powerful when you think about, let's go over to the third world for a second, where people can't get bank accounts because they don't have an address, because they can't prove their identity, because sometimes mm. they're you know, due to poverty, due to war, due to you know, running around, being a refugee, whatever it is, there's no way for them to you know, even be able to transact with people, let alone think about wealth. So having a smartphone or even a piece of paper with a wallet on it, people can take 
you know, take and receive transactions uh, any, from anywhere in the world from anybody, which is really cool. And then the last bit, actually using it as a payment system. Like I said, you know, during this podcast, we could have sent each other some Bitcoin back and forth or any other crypto kind of back and forth for that matter uh, without having to use a bank, without having to use a routing number, uh, just a simple address. And the miners are the ones that are incentivized to move that kind of move that transactions around because they'll take a very small transaction fee uh, for moving that transaction. And then the other part of that, which some people always uh, talk about as well, is called what's called a mining reward. Right, you're sending crypto around the network. There's transaction fees. It can be a few cents if it's uh, during a, a really heavily congested period. It might be like as much as a dollar, but it's irrelevant of how much you're sending. If I send you a fiver and it costs me two cents, then that's great. Uh, if I send $100,000 and it costs me a dollar, then some people are still very happy to do that. There's been some very large transactions in the last couple of weeks where mm. people are waiting for low congestion periods. They're moving hundreds of millions of dollars for a dollar fifty. That's the kind of scalability you get with a system like that. When it comes to the mining part of it, the incentive for the miners to run this really powerful equipment to mine transactions as fast as they can is that built into the source code, there's an additional reward instrument. And what it is, basically kind of like Jeopardy, it gives you the answer first. So whoever can get the calculation to this number first wins the block reward. And the block reward is in every single block every 10 minutes. And so what people do is you have the, uh, the Bitcoin source code. And at that particular block in time, it's got a, a difficulty rating. And you've got an answer. And you have to use this mathematical equation to get to this answer as fast as possible. And whoever gets that answer first on that particular block will unlock the six or so Bitcoin uh, per block. Uh, and that's basically it. You're solving a, a, a mathematical equation as quickly as possible and, uh, and getting rewarded for that. And recently in May, this year, as in, what, two months ago, yeah. that reward halved. So it used to be 12 Bitcoin per block. Now it's only six Bitcoin per block. But they still have to do the same amount of work. And it actually will get harder over time. Mm. So if you think about supply and demand, what does that do to the price? What does that do to everything else in the network? If you'll have to work the same amount, but you get paid half as much. You want that price of Bitcoin to go up. And for those listening, this is not like you're grabbing a pen and paper to quickly calculate some mathematical equation. This is a- <laughs> It's funny. You can actually do the math on paper if you want. It will take you kind of about an hour or so, but there's someone, if you go look on YouTube, like doing yeah, Bitcoin right. math by hand, someone actually went and did the algorithm by hand. It took them a while, but it, you, know, you won't be able to do it in 10 minutes. But it is uh, actually interesting. You use the source code, you understand it, you could fill it out in uh, with, with hand math, apparently. I but haven't you- done it, but... <laughs> but you're definitely never going to be able to to win oh, that yeah, you, because it's <laughs> you can't compete with computers. And I think the the big issue right now it's also the big farms that they're building. It's already been going on for a few years. You've got China building massive warehouses with, 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 with incredible yep. uh, uh, computer power. Or I think that's the guy in in Iceland. He's done a really clever yep. thing. He's yep. got the warehouse that's um, obviously using because there's a lot of heating associated with all the servers. Yep. And I think what he's done, he's got he's got uh, solar power or how does he do it? Pro hydro um, or thermal th- geothermal or something like that. Yeah, yeah. that's something really clever where he was able yeah. to like had essentially almost like a zero electricity bill to to fill yeah. the aircon. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's, I think the where the biggest ones are centered at the moment. Yeah, there are big. There's huge investment going into the mining space, accumulating this a finite asset. If you think of something like gold, right? We are constantly pulling gold out of the ground, and we have been for you know for a couple hundred years or so. But we also don't know how much is out there. 
through prospecting or through scanning, et cetera, we're always going to find new pockets. There's probably stuff that's booked into a pipeline for the next kind of 50 years or so, but we're never going to know exactly how much is out there. Same with oil. We're not going to know exactly how much is out there. It's going to get harder and harder, uh, but we'll always, we'll, we're probably always going to keep finding stuff eventually. With Bitcoin specifically, there's a fixed hard number built into the source code that can never be changed. Uh, unless that you were a single person were to control more than 51% of the network, which at this point in time and future is pretty much impossible because the way the mining power goes and the way it's distributed between these different pools, which are all competitors, it's pretty, it's near impossible for the Bitcoin chain to be, um, which is the most secure chain out there, to be controlled 51% by one single entity. It just won't happen. And to that maximum supply is 21 million. We've already mined 18 and a half million to this date. It will get progressively harder and harder, and we'll start seeing this kind of diminishing returns. It's projected about the about 120 years from now, they'll mine the last Bitcoin. But the block reward at that time will be so small that Bitcoin has a projected price in order to still be viable to even be in the business at that point in time. Mm. And the guys that benefit from the most are the ones that have power subsidies. Hydroelectric power is very cheap in places like China. Obviously, geothermal and other kind of green energies in those other countries are, are exceptionally cheap to run. And I think as uh, we invest more in renewables and more into solar, more into others. And the technology keeps going up and up, that there'll be a, an even bigger use case for cryptocurrency and as suppose proof of work style algorithms like Bitcoin to you know, replace some other currencies in the future or be a some sort of reserve currency for in, in some way because it doesn't rely on let's say central banks and governments, and it's running on clean energy. So it's basically carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of papers out there about how much energy cryptos do use which is an unfair poking stick. Oh, it uses more energy than Sweden. Okay, but it also uses it also uses less energy than every standby little LED light on every TV in America. So what's the comparison there? And also, if you think about the banking system, it's the heaviest carbon footprint industry in the world, anywhere. So think about every building in New York and London and every other city in the world that oh, runs right. the banking system. You yeah, know, because there is no it. physical place to go for a Bitcoin. It's all virtual. No, it's, like, it's all virtual, but the energy it takes to run that network is yeah. absolutely minuscule compared to what's, what does the banking system consume in terms of energy? You can't even forecast that properly because it's just the biggest that it will, you put it together. What does the banking system use in terms of run banks? Mm. And, and, uh, and- also, like on a simple terms, how many times you've got a computer running in in a sleep mode, still taking electricity? That you can purpose that time towards mining, where you're away from. Yeah, from- towards exactly. So there's a lot of other other things that use standby energy for crypto or for blockchain. So there's a lot of other ones out there, similar to like Amazon AWS, like a data center service, yep. where you could contribute your uh, spare. Sorry about the sneeze. You can contribute your spare CPU cycles to be a big decentralized data center and get paid for that. You get paid in a native token and people can run their AI simulations. They can run their rendering work. They can run any kind of job they want for a fraction of the price it would cost to use something like Amazon or Microsoft. And they can use these decentralized networks that have hundreds of thousands of people with their laptops, their graphics cards, their gaming machines, earning additional tokens on the side for essentially they might leave the node running while they're actually working. And they say, well, give 25% of my CPU power uh, to this to this decentralized network, and I can still work just fine because I've got a powerful machine. I don't need all of it all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, is it true that over time you also need more and more powerful machine in order to compete? 
If you want to compete at that kind of level, then yes, there are uh, newer machines always coming out. You can be, uh, for about 500 bucks, you can get a, a very cheap little standalone device, or you can run it even on your own machine. And you could be what's called a verifier. So you just verify transactions. So you're not part of the mining process and you're not part of the, uh, not taking a transaction fee, but you're helping strengthen the network by being a verifier. And that's how you can still be a part of it. In terms of being competitive in order to mine Bitcoin for a Bitcoin reward, then yes, you need a, a serious level investment via a, a, what's called an ASCII miner, um, a ASIC. And um those specific specific hardware is designed to do a you know, huge amount of throughput with just one specific purpose to you know, move Bitcoin transactions and mine as fast as possible. So down to the circuit board, down to the chip, the software comes on, it's dedicated for that. But there are factories out there, they've got 100,000 of these things sitting on a shelf, yeah. uh, all configured to run with one specific, one specific pool. If, if you're interested in mining and specifically Bitcoin, uh, you can participate. And be a part of the be a part of the evolution, or you can actually put your piece, you put your hardware into a larger pool that share all those rewards together. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. So you can like I could be using my MacBook Pro in com- in together with dozens of other people, and it would like yeah. Put- and it's still um, yeah, still okay. it's still it's, it's still anonymous as well. So you're just one node in that big long list. And if that node happens to unlock the reward, then that that say six Bitcoin is shared between all of the people compared to how much power you're putting in. So you might be putting in a thousand thousand gig, thousand gigahertz, or whatever number is. Let's just make up a number. The person beside you puts in two thousand gigahertz, so they're going to get a slightly bigger allocation than you will. But it's all shared out evenly in real time. Okay, that's cool. So now, if we had to, if we had to summarize it, um, Bitcoin is uh, a form of cryptocurrency or or one of the cryptocurrencies. Blockchain is a system; it's a computation calculation it's system, a technology, right? Yeah. Now you talked about it's been decentralized and nobody controls it, but at the same time, it controls itself. So correct, nobody owns it. But think about it when no one owns it. It's a piece of software that you can go and look at. You can read it. You can audit it. Uh, you can make your own changes to it and make your own blockchain. You can make your own Bitcoin chain in your own house if you want to. But what's the incentive for someone else to use it? Now, Bitcoin is the oldest. It's the oldest and the first one around. So it's the Ford Model T. It's the, the genesis. Is that people want it because there's a supply and demand. It's the first one, so everyone knows it. Uh, the technology it's built on, it's not the fastest blockchain around. But everyone seems to understand it as a brand as the first one there. Uh, yeah. uh, you go a layer deeper, Ethereum is still a blockchain. It has blocks in sequential order, so blocks in a chain. That's completely transparent, that you can you can see all the transactions in real time. You can be a part of that network. You can mine Ethereum. You can build stuff on it. But Ethereum's difference is that you can actually add automated kind of what they call smart contracts on top of that. So when this happens, do this. When I get this much of a transaction, then go and do this and move it to here, etc. So you can start creating you know, an automated pattern on top of that. Uh, and a lot of other tokens in the space doing very similar things or even doing more advanced things than that. You know, talking with IoT, talking with traditional banking, all of these different things that people are building on these blockchains. The reason they're building it on a blockchain opposed to a you know normal, say, AWS, Amazon server instance or a database, etc., is that everybody can see the same data at the same time. Everybody can collaborate in an anonymous and secure way, and everyone can you know, trust these public blockchains because it's not controlled by a central entity that has influence over it. Everybody in this kind of decentralized anonymous community can all rely on it at the same time because everybody can see the source code and everyone understands it. If there's a bad actor or a bad player, 
you can see those people in real time and they get dropped off the network. So it's almost like a, what is it like? It's like a, it's not like a society. If you want to call yeah. that. Well, 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 the, the one interesting fact about all this is that I think is the validation process where it's, it's, you can't really hack it. It's not like you can hack to someone's server or someone's computer because even if you did, there is copies of that same information everywhere exactly. else. And so it's essentially unbreakable. It's not one target. It's like hundreds of thousands of targets. If you yeah. were to take that, you know, try to take down the Ethereum network or the Bitcoin network, it would be nearly impossible. And I think governments and central banks are starting to catch on to this, that they could go and shut down uh, a Bitcoin mine in their country. And the hash rate will go from here to here. And another mine will pop up somewhere else. It's one of those unstoppable forces. Uh, they could try and regulate the endpoints, people getting in and out of that network, but mm. running a blockchain protocol and being a part of that protocol globally, it's uh, it's one of those unstoppable force things, which kind of it's forcing a lot of people to change their narrative on we can't keep it inside of our border, we can't regulate it, uh, people want to use it, it cuts out middlemen, it promotes transparency, uh, it gets rid of waste. There's a lot of really good things going here. Mm. that we can benefit from, whether it's supply chain, whether it's banking, whether it's finance, whether it's getting aid to the right people at the right time, whether it's ID verification. There's a lot of really good things there. It's just catching the old world up to the new world of when uh, Wall Street went from paper trading to electronic trading. It used to take about five or six days to settle a big trade between big banks. And that went from five days down to two. And everyone lost their freaking minds. Uh, the same thing is going to happen with crypto and blockchain specifically, is that this technology is going to unlock so many possibilities to get rid of middlemen, to get rid of waste, to settle stuff in real time, to be able to see you know, transparent data. And I don't think part of the world is ready for that yet. I like the part about the validation also from like what you said, checking people's IDs or even contracts where it's, say, you close a new deal, you sign a dotted line, but it's like an electronic contract. And that contract, <laughs> once it becomes part of the blockchain, you can't unbreak it, so then nobody comes, nobody exactly. can come back and say, "Oh, that that co- contract never happened." No, it did. Yep, and it's part of the and, chain now. And then, and then when you start interacting that chain with the real world, a really cool example of this I've seen, and I can't remember the name of it, but if you Google it, you will find it very quickly. And it was basically an insurance policy, which is a smart contract on top of Ethereum, and it basically meant if your flight didn't leave and arrive when it was supposed to within about a 10-minute window, you mm. would get a portion of that insurance policy back. So if you're on a business trip and there, and if you leave 20 minutes late or it gets delayed or whatever, and you know, subsequently you have incurred costs, you could actually choose the size of your insurance policy. So like, I'm going to put in uh, 400 bucks on this insurance policy. And if, if, if they do what they say they're going to do, then I will get a, a little bit of that back. And the, 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 contract, you know, the, the airline keeps the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But if, I, if I'm delayed by X amount, which you, within the rules of this contract that you define, if it's 60 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever, I get the full 400. So the participants can see the funds there. They're locked. So I can't renege on the contract. If the flight takes off 20 minutes late and arrives 20 minutes late, those full amount of funds and a bonus is going to come back to me. But if they do exactly what they say they're going to do on this insurance policy, I've got to pay a small premium for that. But I'm getting exactly what I paid for. And that's two participants shaking hands on a deal uh, and the funds are locked with a bit of source code and nobody can touch it until something feeding in what we call these oracles, bits of real data that can't be you know, influenced. So I can't lie to you about the weather because it's yeah. the weather. 
and what about weather, that? There's, there's weather temperature yeah. probes everywhere that'll prove me wrong. So those kind of oracles will feed in data into the blockchain to say, yes, this actually happened. And you and me can't influence that. So when a flight takes off and when it lands, there's a lot of factors in there between the FAA, between satellites, radars, and da, 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 which become that source of truth, which actually say, yeah, that flight took over and left at the right time and landed at the right time in the right place. Mm-hmm. So if there's a smart contract built on that information, say, if you fail that, I get money. And if you don't fail, I'll pay you a small premium. That sort of layer of it's completely decentralized, but it affects real world stuff. Like, oh, I would take that contract <clears throat> and make sure I arrived on time. Uh, same as getting a delivery of a car, delivery of goods and services. Did this coffee actually come from Guatemala? That kind of stuff is really interesting when you start putting this completely trustworthy and validation layer on top of that. Yeah, it's excellent. And, and two key things I'm getting from this is one, that would speed up the process of you getting that money in a second no like reduced need for litigation especially in insurance yeah. having to go and deal with the lawyers and the lengthy process before you yeah <laughs> look at um look at what happened with covid recently so when covid kicked off here in the uk my mum was actually here with me in the uk before she managed to get back to australia but uh, they cancelled a bunch of flights out of dubai we were on the phone with you know qantas and qatar airways and all these people just to try and get her home because mm-hmm. as soon as that lockdown curtain dropped she was going to be stuck here. Not that I don't like having my mum around, of course. Going through all that process, we booked like close to £4,000 worth of flights in order to try just to get her home. And she's had to go through this huge process the last kind of two months to try and claw some of that money back because the flights were cancelled. We couldn't get on them. All of that kind of stuff. I think she's given up on one of them trying to get the money back because you just can't get anyone on the phone anymore. She's happy Mm. to be home and be safe, but push comes to shove what's more valuable, your time or getting on with your life uh, or trying to claw back some money that was yours in the first place. And a lot of these kind of things can be, it can be solved with this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. You know, I can definitely relate to that experience because I know I was in Czech Republic in February, just visiting my uh, my family, my partner and we, it was uh, our flight was literally the day before the Czech government closed. Wow. So we, we yeah. just made it. But even then, like our, our flight was canceled altogether and it was very mm. difficult. Like we were supposed to fly through South Korea and then, then we were told, oh, just go to the airport and there's going to be somebody from the yeah. South Korean airline. You talk to them and there was nobody there and you didn't know what to yeah. talk to and it was chaos. Yeah. It was chaos, yeah. I had a very similar <laughs> thing coming back from, from Paris. They're basically they're going to close the country tomorrow. Are you on the next train? I'm like, no, I've got a train booked for three days from now. And they go, yeah, I'd go sort that out. And we went down to the train station in Paris, and they literally said, just grab your bags, get on the next one. Don't just give us your passport, give us your name, give us your email address. Do you have a ticket? Was they all got a ticket in three days? They never asked for it. They might have checked it in the system, but they didn't ask for any money. Nothing like that. Just move these people on. And that was, mm. hey, this is real now. Eurostar are shelling out hundreds of thousands of pounds just getting people across the channel as fast as possible. And yeah, it was a very chaotic time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a stressful time. Mm. Now, one, of the, one of the good things to do when we're stressed, we, we go and exercise. <laughs> what do you do to keep yourself fit and healthy, Jeff? Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so I live on the river here in London when the weather's good enough. Obviously, doing some running on the river was always really good fun. I definitely into weights and gym. I obviously can't do that at the moment, so I'm back to home exercise. But I used to do quite a lot of the adventure races, the adventure runs, yeah, like, like Tough Mudder, Mud oh, runs, yeah. those kind of things. They're awesome. Yeah, and I don't do it enough anymore, but I got into boxing quite heavily for a couple of years. Did a, a charity fight night. I will say is there are much less stressful ways of raising money for charity than getting punched in the face, but it is really good exercise. So I'd say boxing is probably one of the top ones if you can uh, make the time investment and the commitment to it. Absolutely. You're killing two birds of one stone as well. You get to 
improve your fitness and hipster and learn learn the skill pretty valuable yeah the um is actually the, the there's a lot more to it than just see they're punching a bag the way you move your shoulders and your hips and it actually all of it starts in your feet which mm. i didn't know until you got proper training movements in your feet which is how you you know counter your opponents and stuff like that is uh no it's a really it's a really it's almost like a life skill i think everyone should try it at least once uh, yeah even if you don't do the sparring you just do the glove work it is a uh, no it's a really good skill to learn and the good thing about this type of activities, which involve more coordination, you know, more control and a bit more complex sort of um, think as well, thinking as well, is that they not only improve your physical your fitness and well-being, but they actually, and there is new studies coming out about the benefits of fitness on your cognitive functioning, on Amazing. your brain, and actual like neuroplasticity and that sort of stuff. It's really interesting. Mm. So I've actually banned myself when I was at the gym. I couldn't take my phone with me anymore. I had to listen to the music at the gym, which sometimes is horrible. But I would be constantly taking notes because I'd be getting all these flushing out these ideas or, or solutions or whatever it was while at the gym. And I wasn't getting a full workout in sometimes because I was putting it into our Slack chat and typing a message and then you get distracted. And just say getting those juices flowing is key i think not only to clear thinking and uh, mental wellness but i think it was just for business you'll figure out uh, a new product a new way to connect with people uh, a problem that you might be having an email a troubled email that you don't want to answer uh, a lot of that stuff just pops in your head when you get the juices flowing properly absolutely now uh, you've launched coin pass and you're a ceo there right so Correct. Big, big responsibility through the day lots of a little just through the days like night and day and weekend <laughs> so again right going and and exercising it's another really good buffer to be able to perform it definitely i think exercise and i'd say sleep even more i think sleep gets uh, a big underrated big underrated part of a lot of people's lifestyle getting stuff done and working for the sake of working is not going to get your results you need to have the uh, a healthy balance between obviously your food relationship, your, your water intake, uh, sleep and exercise. And some people think that's a huge commitment. What do you, how do you fit in all the other work? And what happens is that all of the non-important stuff drops off and you only have the focus stuff that's important. And all of those things that you think you need to do, about, oh, I need to follow up every single LinkedIn lead that I get. I need to follow <laughs> up every single message that I get. I need to follow up every single email that comes in. You start dropping it off because a lot of that stuff that's coming into your life is usually a lot of noise anyway. When you start being really specific with your time, really specific with the focus and attention of what you need right now or what you need in a week, two weeks, whatever your strategy is going to be, it becomes very easy to follow. I haven't really gotten to the the point of the uh, Tim Ferriss uh, four-hour work week just yet. I have to do a little bit more than four hours of work per week. But as you start to you know scale up and start to get a team behind you and you focus on leveling that team up as fast as possible, you stop being the one-man band. You have to promote online and get people to come. You have to, get the, you have to do the ticket sales and you have to seat everybody. Then you've got to play the song and then get your reviews and feedback. You start to move to a bit of a conductor role where someone else is selling the tickets someone else is sitting everyone down you're just focused on playing really good music and then eventually you can actually sit in the audience and listen to your own music and, and watch it develop by itself and that's something that i've learned i think through my time of being a solo premier having a couple of properties dealing with agents dealing with banks and doing everything yourself to being a part of a, a huge machine like a casino or like softbank and to the point where we're at CoinPass now we've actually picked up five staff during this kind of covid uh, pandemic which i didn't think was going to happen that's i thought we were going to have to harden up and contract but we're at you know, nearly 19 people now and a lot of my time goes into you know, driving new processes into the team all the tweaking and all the adjustment to the processes are actually done by the team 
Yeah. So we use internal feedback processes to like, did that work? Could it be done better? And I, I, I focus on getting the team to talk to each other really effectively. And are we doing something that's wasteful? Are we uh, building the best product possible? How are we solving problems that are coming in? And how is that flow of information stopping people in their tracks? So are our compliance team too data heavy on everything that comes in or do they only need to see 10% of it? That's the kind of measurements that we do internally to make sure uh, everyone's seeing what they need to see. Uh, there's no double compounding on doing the work twice uh, and that there's really effective means of communication. And that's by far allowed us to grow the way we've grown over the last 12 months. Oh, I love it. I'm hearing a lot of proactivity, proactive type of task. It's always proactive. You can be reactive. You can still do that, but you cannot run a 100% re- reactive business. It's just too stressful. You lose track of the market. You lose track of your competitors. And there are simply not enough hours in the day. You cannot do it by yourself. Hmm. Yeah. And there's only and, and and some people think they can do everything themselves, and that's how you end up getting health issues. A, a, a strong business is is built on team. Uh, it's not built on person. What what was your number one platform that you guys use right now? Are you, are you on one of those Monday dot com or what? Yes, yeah, so we use a few on? things. We use Asana at the moment. I've looked at well, Monday dot com came along halfway through our kind of journey, so we never moved. So we use Asana for all of our kind of project management stuff and processes and kind of manuals, etc. We're using Slack for all of our internal communications. Uh, that may run. Microsoft Teams has really improved over the last kind of six to twelve months, uh, yeah, right. and we may move across to Teams purely because there's a few extra things in there that Slack doesn't have. But we're exceptionally happy with Slack. Uh, a lot of our development workflows come into Slack. A lot of our support workflows come into Slack, uh, and just general alerting, which is really good to have. Uh, you can mute all the stuff you don't need to see. So if I need a focus time, I mute everything I don't need to see, and then I come out of that focus time, I get back into operations and marketing and support and stuff like that. And then just be able to check in with people, do your video conferencing, do your screen sharing. If it takes longer than uh, a couple of sentences, you jump on a call. And by far, probably my biggest pet peeve, uh, I hate because I did it for two or 12 years, keeping everything off email, only engaging with a couple of clients here and there and booking some meetings and stuff like that. I stay off email as much as possible. Yeah, no, that's a good way to do it because, again, that's where you start getting into, you know, getting all that reactivity when you start getting tons of emails. You get just, if you just <laughs> think it stuck with me, it was one of the, it was a finance director. There was a finance director back at the casino and he said to me, it was like my th- second or third year in tech, and it is your inbox is someone else's problem waiting to be answered. I'm like, it's really interesting. So if I send an email to someone and say, la, 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 how are you doing? Let's set up a call or let's do this or can you help me? I'm shifting everything that I need onto someone else and I'm waiting for it to come back to me. If you'd be really proactive and like, I can do this for you, et cetera, let's solve a problem, you probably get an email re- reply. But if you're giving it onto someone else, you are literally shifting your problem onto someone else's inbox. So that's why yeah. it takes such a low priority in my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a good example with scheduling calls and that sort of, that's one of those things where you definitely don't need, you can totally out, automate it these days. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we're both on Calendly, et cetera. So yeah, book a time, here are my slots. And you have there a specific thing. So if I'm doing podcast calls, you know, 10 minute interview, or you're doing the, the half an hour record, they're two different workflows and they can run by themselves. And more to the point, they can be run by a team or a PA. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes in between. Like you say, you set up, are you recording? Is it online, et cetera? All yeah. of that stuff doesn't have to be in front of you. All of that but, can be done by someone else or by tech. Yeah. But the good thing was like I was just able to send you a link. You were able to look up a time and then you got the reminders yeah. as well. So I don't have to like make I don't have to chase anybody yep. up or remind anybody up. It's, it's stuff like this and and what the future is ahead lies for us in terms of the AI stuff, it's just gonna be even better. 
Yeah, on that kind of point, when it comes to AI stuff, yeah, it could be you know, finding you know, more guests or more leads and stuff like that. You're getting out to you know, a wider network of people is, uh, is a trick, I suppose, in business. But yeah. there's there's other ways that can be done for you as well. If you have a really good content set and you put that into some sort of AI engine that goes and finds you, you know, more content to make with more guests, that's something that can be really helpful to your business. Do you know about anything like that? It's not. I know a couple of people that are very deep into it, and then they, they I can. I can have a conversation about it, but I don't pretend to understand it. No, I think it's very cool. I think all, all AI at the moment is basically machine learning. So you put info in, it'll run it through its algo you know, hundreds of thousands of times and it will give you an output. But they are not, uh, and they're using the output to then learn again and again. Mm. But they are not sentient and they're not self-learning and they're not self-improving. And I think we get to the self-improvement bit, that's where it will you know, start to really level up. But at the moment, uh, a lot of machine learning you know, AI is based on putting as much input as possible, uh, running all the permutations, getting a result, and then running it again. A really good example of this is there's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's an AI that runs on a game called StarCraft, competitive yeah. real-time strategy. And you can basically subscribe to it saying, yes, I'm happy for my games to be put into the AI to make it better. And it uses, say, a replay of a game. It might be 5, 10, 15 minutes long. And it will take all the input of all the moves and all the clicks that happen during that game. It will push it through its algorithm. And it will play that same game like a million times. Out of all the permutations that could have happened in that 5, 10-minute game, it will run all the permutations and it will learn from it. It will learn the strategies. It will learn the vehicles. It will learn the, the units, all that kind of stuff, mm. all the economic parts of it. And it will build its own strategy, like the best strategy for that particular map, for that particular person, for that, all that kind of stuff. And it's at the point now where a lot of professionals are having a hard time beating it because it's seen that strategy 60 million times before it's seen that economic point in time where it's got 50 units on the field it's building 12 it's got this many minerals in the bank it's played that game millions of times and it knows what to do next and that's a really cool application of getting more and more data in it running all the permutations and coming out with the result and then playing itself again and that's self-learning and it's getting 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 but it's not saying cool i'm going to then take all this research and i'm going to put it onto another game now that's the next step and next evolution for that type of ai yeah, and as long as long as it all stays under control, that was the case. I, I'm not sure if it's true, but I've heard when uh, Microsoft and IBM or, or who it was they were doing some some research on that, and they got two supercomputers, super and and then they started create their own language. And they had to shut it off. Oh, oh, I haven't read. I'll go. I'll have a look at that after the call. The only one I know that's similar to that was they put a uh, again machine learning bot uh, onto Twitter, and it was supposed to take in tweets and develop a personality. And unfortunately, uh, the internet happened, as I like to call it, and it came out as like a narcissistic, goth, Nazi something. All these like really random things. People were just throwing a lot of hate tweets at it, and it was taking this in and forming this personality while doing research at the same time. And they they shut it off after like five or six hours. <laughs> Same wow. as like when someone's like, oh, we're going to let the internet name this boat. Well, okay, it's Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> That's when the internet happens. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, let's wrap it up. Let's talk about back to your business. So any advice that you'd like to give somebody starting a business? Anyone starting a business, find an audience of one anywhere in the world. If you want to open something super local that's making cookies for this particular street corner. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And don't let anyone ever tell you any different. But think about who else might want that cookie on the other side of the world. So you need to build a business for an audience of one, but that one person could be anywhere in the world. So if you act global, 
but think local with really good service with don't be don't try to undercut all your competition by half straight away because you'll find the margins don't stretch far enough to you to make for you to make any mm. sort of living uh, a business is supposed to be it's supposed to complement your lifestyle not replace it and in the early days it will feel like it's replaced everything from your family your friends your bank balance all that kind of stuff and it is a really hard slog it is not as easy as a lot of guys make it look online uh, but make sure it's got some sort of scale to it and you will not get it right the first time the i suppose the real trick of it is as well as getting to the point where you have a team behind you whether it's just one other person or one or two other people and there will be a point where you have a bit of a breakdown say how am i going to pay these people this month mm-hmm. and you will start to put other people first and it's a really an interesting narrative when you started this business for yourself to either get rich or to get something or to get whatever it is there's nothing wrong with wanting to be rich and wanting to have some sort of greed because that pushes you outside of your circle it just depends on why you want it and i think that comes into another bit of, of why you're doing what you're doing have mm-hmm. a really clear picture on why i want to have a, a lifestyle for my family that's really healthy and that we have the opportunity to travel and have the opportunity to see the things I've seen in my life and be able to, at the drop of a hat, go and do what we want. You know, that's my reason why. Um, being able to pick up and go see my mum in Australia whenever I want now is more of a, does the business need me for something strategic, but it's not a money thing and I don't have to ask for permission. And those were my two big goals when I had my first consultancy business is that I want to make, make enough money per month that I can take a month off work or consulting if I want go see my family when I want, or potentially take a, a weekend trip when I want. And what started happening is that I started prioritizing that stuff in a different order, and none of them were connected to money anymore. Money was a byproduct. And I think having those fundamentals is probably the most important thing when starting a business. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I can definitely, again, I can definitely relate to this one because myself, for me, starting this podcast, it's definitely a lifestyle goal for me and for my partner. And we got a, a baby on the way, so... Definitely, same thing. Just be able to uh, make enough money, provide some really good value to people, to listeners on these topics of business and, and personal development. And if it if it monet- if I can develop some sort of way to monetize on it and, and generates revenue to you know pay the bills, it's great. Mm. And, and exactly. again, like just like yourself, living on the other side of the world where your family is on the other one, you want to be able to go whenever you want to. Yeah, you know, go and see that. Yeah, one. for sure. For yeah, me, for sure. So I've yeah. got my cousins and second cousins down in Sydney. So I, I send a, a London care package once a year to Sydney from Australia. Uh, and they're like seeing all the stamps and all the stuff gets added to it along the way. And this guy's not only a box about this big, you know, 50, 60 quid. Uh, but that's something that I do every single year. And someday, so, sometimes I'll actually, you know, by surprise, I'll turn up in Sydney for Christmas and won't tell anyone. And that's just something that I like doing. So they are up in the box and I'm sitting beside it. <laughs> or uh, I've done it a few times with my mum and said, I'm going to be there on like Thursday the 7th uh, and I turn up like a week early or something like that at her, at her work and then take it for lunch. That's a lot of, those are some of the really special byproducts that come from having complete control over your time because you can't buy that back and uh, having complete control over when you go and what you, when, when you want to do stuff. So setting yourself a, a trajectory and a goal is great. Not hitting the goal is not the end of the world. You're trying to get, I want to be a millionaire within a year you can have that goal. People have done it. There's nothing wrong with it. You just got to graft exceptionally hard and you have to get rid of every bit of every, everything in your life that doesn't look like a business. Yeah. And that's on, and that could be unhealthy in some ways. Setting attainable goals, setting best case, worst case, you replace your income in 12 months. That's a pretty good worst case scenario. Best case scenario, I could put a deposit on a house where I'm not renting anymore. Cool. That's a, bu- a very bullish goal and not a lot of people can do that or a supreme best case i go and raise x amount of money i build a huge team and i have a global business and i can exit it in three years yeah that's 
absolutely massive. I've not seen it done in my particular circle, not to say it can't be done, but yeah, you have to basically chisel everything out of your life that isn't 100% supportive and you need to make every single right move for a long time to make that work. But if that's your goal, make it your goal. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of cryptocurrency, what is something that, like, how much can one expect if, if somebody was to do it through investing in crypto? So I think it depends on a risk. You should never put all of your eggs in one basket, even though talk about all your big Warren Buffett quotes and stuff like that. Someone putting 100% of their net worth into crypto is crazy. I think right now with where the global markets are in terms of you know, what's happening in the US, what's happening in Asia, rampant money printing right now, massive devaluing of fiat currency, that crypto is a an interesting hedge to fiat currency or an interesting hedge to uncertainty. So being able to take that, take self-custody of that Bitcoin or that Ethereum or whatever your chosen, whatever your chosen one, being able to take that into custody where no one else could touch it and it's not affected by tomorrow the Central Bank of England could print another hundred million pounds, mm. further diluting the supply and that buying power. Crypto could still do this, but you know, no one else can affect it but me. So I think if you had a part of your portfolio, whether it's one percent, two percent, five percent in crypto and you can be emotionally detached from the volatility, then I think not being in crypto is more dangerous than being in crypto, my personal opinion. Mm. The way the world will go over time with digital currencies, centralized central bank digital currencies, which are the big kind of craze at the moment, you can't afford to at least be looking at this stuff. Even if you're spending, buy five less coffees per month and put 20 bucks into crypto per month and average your way in. Buy the same amount every month, regardless of the price, set it on auto and forget about it. Yeah. And then get that into a wallet and actually learn about what this stuff can do. And if you learn about it now, you'll already be part of the next 1%. There's less than half percent of the world's population looking at this stuff right now. Still. It's on the news. Yeah, still. So it's quite it's higher in other countries, like you say, Europe and America, et cetera. It's something like 3% in the UK, about 5% in Europe, somewhere between kind of 4 and 5% in the United States. But globally, across you know, the entire population of the earth, it's still probably about 0.6 of a percent. Oh. We get to over, over 2% global population. That's when I think the, the next really big run will happen. But it'll take time. So if you look at it now, there's still time. It's never too late. Everyone should be looking at their financial wealth just as much as their just as much as their Friday night plans. And if yeah, you spend a couple of hours reading on a weekend, follow a little bit of news here and there. You don't have to know every single little tiny technical piece. You just have to give yourself a little bit of exposure and willing to do something new. One of the good sources to to do that might be to jump on your website. You've got a blog there. <laughs> sure. So yeah, we have uh, coinpass.com is the main platform. Uh, we have our blog, so top right-hand corner, look at all the different articles on the menus, etc. So we are based in the UK. We do offer Europe. We are looking to expand uh, globally pretty soon as well. So at the moment, if your listeners are out there, we can get yeah, pound sterling in Euro. Hopefully, Aussie dollars in the future as well. But we are doing a lot of stuff on our academy, which is obviously we do practical articles on investing and trading and etc. We do a lot more pieces on industry level pieces. So we talk about regulation, we talk about what else is going on, not really on the political side, more on the economic side and how that relates to crypto. And kind of, you know, so there's, yeah, all, all, always something new happening every single week. So we try and keep it focused and educational. We don't post news for news sake. Uh, mm. And we like work with our partners in our ecosystem as well. So we work with a lot of other London businesses and European partners as well and we're always just trying to put really good quality stuff out there to uh to educate people that's awesome jeff did we work out that deal what are you going to do for the listeners 
Yeah, so we have a new a new referral schedule coming out really soon. Uh, hopefully by the time this airs, that when you put in uh, your first deposit, you will get a deposit bonus. And anyone that is referred or you refer your friends, uh, you will get 20% of their fees. So you can come on, you can buy a little bit of crypto, you can learn a little bit, and you tell a few of your friends and they do the same thing, uh, you'll get a portion of their fees. And that'll all be on now on the website and on the back of this podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Jeff, it's been it's been super informative learning not only about crypto, but also about your journey as a business owner and a lot of value bombs there for everybody. So once again, thank you for being on the show and I look forward to hopefully catch up on another, another episode. We can delve more into crypto stuff and unpack some news by then. Awesome. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate the time and uh, thank you to all the listeners. Have a great day.